So previously we covered the human condition, OH, illness and death. Yeah, and we are today at page 31. Uh, this first three, the human condition, OH, illness and death, uh, is the first three, uh, no, uh, the number second, third and fourth of the uh, first noble truth of suffering. The first noble truth of suffering, Hu Pi, yeah, the truth of suffering, uh, birth, age, aging, illness, and death. Uh, if you look at these three, um, it is actually part of what the Buddha saw before he left uh, the palace. In some texts, uh, and some speakers, when they mention about the things that the Buddha saw in the first uh, uh, first visit to the city, or the first four visits, they wrongly say, uh, lao, sen lao yeah. uh, that's actually wrong. Yeah. So, when he when he went out of the city, of the palace to look at the city, he didn't he see Sen Lao Ping Si, he see Lao Ping Si. Yeah. Uh, aging, sickness and death. So when he saw these three, on three different visits, uh, it is said that the, the North, South, East, West Gate, he went through each of them and saw the first three, and it, it was a shock to him. This is if we reference to when he was much younger, when he was newly born, uh, the prophecy given by uh, one of the sages. Um, the rest of them all said that uh, he could either be a great king or a great teacher, an awakened one. But the last one uh, foretold that he will confirm be a great teacher, will become an enlightened uh, one. Uh, and the condition is that he will see the, the suffering of human, human, human life, aging, sickness and death, and then see an ascetic, and from there he will renounce the world. So the father was very concerned, King Sudhodana. And so built three palaces to shelter him from the vagarities of, of weather, and make sure that everybody who was serving him was free of signs of old age and sickness. Of course, someone who's dead won't be serving him. Yeah, but anyone who is nearing to, nearing to death will definitely be removed. Uh, in the past, when I was when I learned about this in RK in the 80s, yeah, last time there's religious knowledge in secondary school, uh, it was it was almost like a fairy tale. It sounded very unreal, like. Huh? Is it possible to do that? But then, in recent years, when I teach the life of the Buddha, then I realized that actually, uh, we in Singapore today, uh, and in fact in many, many modern societies, we live like the Buddha. You go to any restaurants, uh, everybody is so well-camped, 
you know, the mall is so clean and so perfect. I remember sharing about how there was once uh, when I was still a lay person and I was in, I think, Marina Square. And I walk, 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 and I open the wrong door and get into one of the service areas. Yeah. And once I cross over from the shopping mall, the public area to the service area, it was almost like I was in a movie, you know, enter into a different zone. The, the, the wall was, was raw concrete, uh, the, the very bad fluorescent lighting, not the diffuse light, and the air was stale. And when I stepped back, or back to the, you know, very nice smell, with beautiful lighting, uh, and even hard music, and I look, and I, I almost like stand in the border of, of uh, the, what we call Hua Hua Sijia, the La La Land, you know, and then the other side is like reality. But then also like that. Before you watch movie and after you watch movie is different thing, two different roads. Before you go into a watch movie, it's what it's sweet, and after you call it, you know, it's like it's in the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, know. exactly. So, uh, in a way, we are living like the Buddha. You know, everything, the, the whole packaging, everything is is designed to make life look good. Yeah. Uh, and this extends to so many other areas. It's not a bad thing to have hospitals, yeah? but you, you find that um, our, for most people, our day-to-day -day contact is with the beautiful side of things. Yeah. So when I look back at the Buddha's life uh, account, it is not such a surprise that uh, his king, his father, would set up uh, his life to be one that he don't see aging, sickness and death. It doesn't mean that we don't see that. On the news, we can see that. On YouTube, we can see that. And once in a while, family members or our friends and family pass away. Yeah. But if, if you can imagine for the Buddha, for 29 years, he don't see any of this. And then, uh, suddenly, at the brink of his um, uh, that transition period where he was supposed to take over the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and according to the text, it says that before he actually go into the city, his father prepared the whole path. And again, in the past, when I read it, I was like, oh, no, you know, how is it possible? Yeah. But today, uh, I experienced that myself. Because sometimes, being invited as a guest of honour, or sometimes as part of the religious delegate. By the time you arrive, everything is speak and span, everything is perfect, everybody is, hey, welcome, welcome. Yeah, whether in Singapore, together with the ministers, or overseas, as part of the um, regional or international delegates, they're always presented with the best of everything. Yeah. So, um, in a way, so much things have changed since the Buddha's time. Uh, but yet at the same time, nothing much has changed. We are still trying to present the best of things, and sometimes to the extent of ignoring what is relative. Yeah. Uh, for the case of Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha when he was a prince, 
uh, when he stepped out, it was all lined with perfection. The whole city was cleaned up, the gate that he was going to go through, the, those who are like Pai Ka Pai Chu are all set to the side and, you know, presented with the best. Uh, but somehow, he saw an old lady. Somehow, he saw a sick person. Somehow, he saw a funeral procession. When supposedly along the path he's supposed to walk, all these are supposed to be here. Some commentaries say that these three are actually not, uh, not accidental. These three were manifested by heavenly beings. Some commentaries say that, uh, yeah. uh, but there are others who speculate that perhaps the Buddha, as the prince, he walked halfway and he maybe veered off. Yeah. So unless the king changed the whole city, which he probably cannot. So once he veered off, he saw such things. Yeah. I think whether it's some heavenly beings or that he veered off the intended path, uh, I'm glad that he saw it. <laughs> Because maybe if the Buddha didn't see the three things, uh, today there's no Buddhism. That's true. So perhaps it was uh, a matter of time. Uh, so ultimately when he saw that uh, it caused him to be very surprised like and the question the back and forth question between him and his uh, attendant Chandra uh, Chandra was was very is very poignant. Yeah, it is almost like the the question that a child would ask: What is that? An old person, a sick person, a, a funeral procession. Why isn't that person moving? Why is that person? Why does that person look so different from us? Yeah, these are questions that a ch only a child would ask. But it also it goes to show how shielded the Buddha was, and perhaps it is precisely because he was so shielded that he get such a shock, you know. Because for most of us, we are quite exposed. So maybe the actual exposure, then we just assume that that is how it's supposed to be. You know? uh, now, seeing these three things is not something that is unique, actually. Throughout history. Humanity has always faced aging, sickness, and death. Uh, as I get more and more exposed to different religion and spend years in the, in the monastic life, I start to have one um, hypothesis, a kind of a thought, that throughout history, as different civilizations is exposed to this um, human condition, yeah, I like the way the Buddha, uh, not the Buddha, Parabha Bhikkhu Bodhi titled it, The Human Condition. Yeah. In some of the sharing, I mentioned this also. Yeah. This is our human condition. Or sometimes I call it the human experience. Yeah. Um, other civilizations then suggest that, yes, life is impermanent. 
there's aging, there's sickness and death. But if you can, if you accept uh, uh, something, a certain belief, then there can be a state beyond aging, sickness and death. There will be no more aging, sickness and death. You will get to live forever. You will never grow old again and you will never fall sick. And if you look at almost all religions, that's what they promise. Yeah. Uh, the Buddha is perhaps the one person who don't give such a promise. He says, no, you, you, there's no escape. As long as whatever is born will not escape aging, sickness and death. So this, this part, there's actually a link. Uh, I highlighted in many classes pertaining to the life story of the Buddha and sometimes in the uh, Heart Sutra class also, that initially when he decided to go for, he didn't see birth as a problem. Yeah. Seeing birth as a problem was a conclusion after the observe and attain enlightenment. Yeah. Initially you don't see birth, because everybody, since the Buddha's time until now, everybody thinks that birth is good, yeah. happy birth. <laughs> yeah. But he saw, clearly that aging sickness and death is a problem. And so when you look at the, his description of how later on he uh, go to learn under different teachers, uh, the two meditation teacher, Alara and Udaka, and later he learn uh, and practice extreme asceticism, he was always directed to how to end this suffering, aging sickness and death, and all the separation and tribulation and pain that comes with these three things. Yeah. Uh, in the end, he, he started to meditate and he came upon you know, this observation or question. From where does aging, sickness and death come from? And as he observed his own life, his present life, and he observed past life, his past past life, he observed throughout and he observed all sentient beings, he observed that Whatever that has been born, ultimately, will go through aging, sickness, and death. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, uh, heavenly beings don't, don't uh, fall sick. Yeah. Heavenly beings don't fall sick. They, uh, I, if I don't recall wrongly, they don't age also. They just experience death at the end. But that, death is a very long process. So, uh, when he observed this, then his, he, uh, he started to observe that that is an inevitable truth. So there's no escape from aging, sickness and death. Then he went further. In that case, what, is the, what causes birth? He don't suggest, okay, I'm really convinced this right But what causes birth? And this started the inquiry that leads to the realization of dependent origination. Yeah. Uh, dependent origination, the traveling surgeons, is not something that he sit down and hey, I must come with some amazing theory, uh, and then he just well, draft and then revise into it. It's not a committee driven conclusion. He didn't sit down with a council and then say, hey, we must come up with something for our teachings. You know, it is what he observed. And it stems from the problem he solved. Yeah. So when we look at the human condition, 
this is really at the at the core of the of how Buddhism started. Yeah. Uh, and if you really think about it, two thousand five six hundred years later, we are still grappling with this old age, sickness, and death. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other problems come from this treatment. A lot of other problems come from this treatment. We talk about resources and food. It ultimately is for sustaining this. You can live without an iPhone, but you cannot live without food. You can you can go without going for tour. Of course, now in Singapore, police will say they can't. <laughs> you can't live without going for tour. Yeah, but you you must have shelter. But shelter is for what for you to live. Ultimately, it's, it really boils down to these three things. And when you experience these three things, in turn, you experience separation from loved ones or contact with unpleasantness. Yeah, and as a summary. You don't get what you want. Whenever you don't get what you want, you suffer. So this is the human condition. So uh, at, on page thirty-one, we go go further. The tribulations of unreflective living, the dart of painful feeling. This is one sutra which uh, occasionally I will highlight, and I will. Uh, Point out, monks, when the uninstructed worldly experiences a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then strike him immediately afterward. With a second duck, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two ducks. So too, when the uninstructed whirling experiences a painful feeling, he feels two feelings: a bodily one and a mental one. So, uh, the description: he weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. Uh, again, is quite melodramatic, but. Uh, there was one day I saw on the news some some I think flood in India, and then you see the the villagers coming together, and that's what they really do. Indians really do that. <laughs> you think you you see that in shows, but they they really so much grief in a way, and sometimes in Singapore it's just so safe and so calm, no natural disaster. You. It's very hard to understand what people are going through, but when you try to put yourself in their shoe, the whole village gone, no. And when when you think whole village gone, what does that mean? In Singapore, if if your family is okay, it's okay, lah. Yeah, but for them, the whole village is their family, lah. And it's possibly that the whole village is the only people they know in their whole life, because they just stay in the village. Now the whole village is wiped out, and only, maybe their only person surviving because they happen to be out of town, and then they come back, and the whole village is gone. <laughs> Can you imagine how? Yeah, or maybe it's just a few person left in the whole village. It's a very scary thing, actually. Yeah. In Singapore, in some ways, we are like living in heaven. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of human emotions we don't experience. Uh, I once. Uh, met someone. 
um, he is my my PRC friend. So and some Taiwanese friend, they say that Singaporeans uh, artists, you know, the those who uh, write songs or music or write movies will never write anything that's really touching a movie. Moving. Why? Because you don't experience much. Because first of all, in Singapore, throughout the whole year is summer. You don't see things change. You don't experience the the, 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 the differences in even climate. You know, there's nothing much that the up and down is not so drastic. You know, yeah. so uh, I was when I was in Taiwan, uh, I experienced the the much uh, weather. In Taiwan, I don't know about now, but last time in Taiwan, in March, around the time of Qingming, uh, they will sometimes have the very light drizzle. Yeah. You know last time they went to... Uh, it's a very popular Chinese song in Malay. Yeah, they went to... 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 so and, and in many ways uh, so when I was there in Taiwan in 1994 94 uh, March I experienced a really light drizzle you know how light the drizzle is Singapore sometimes you have light drizzle but it's nothing compared with that kind of light drizzle it is like you know the, the spray misgun uh, misgun you 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 sometimes some plants uh, you cannot just water no? you must when it's raining, the light freezer, it feels like that. So it's so, wow. Very cooling. Yeah, an amazing feeling. So Singapore, it, you really don't feel that vagarities of life that changes. Yeah. So this, this, this part here, uh, when they talk about beating his breast and becoming destroyed, in Singapore, it's very hard to find people doing that. But even then, uh, in recent years, you start to see a lot of... Maybe sometimes... Only to the point where someone has passed away. In our day-to-day, -day, <coughs> our emo, uh, nothing much. Uh, for better or worse. Recently, the P5 born uh, 
committed suicide. Uh, there are some, I think, maybe some one of you, was it you or somebody mentioned about how the, or someone mentioned to me about how the mother said, Aldi, yeah, you know, ask for 70, I never asked for 80. Yeah. Uh, to me, I would cut her a lot of slack because she just lost her son. Yeah. And and I see this, that statement as uh, not so much to defend herself, but it's just a like it's just something that you say, you know. Yeah. And it's not so much that he's she's still blaming the, the son, but it's more of trying to explain to herself that she didn't cause the death. Yeah. Did she cause the death? Uh, I would say that in a way the family caused the death, but not at that point. No. It is from the moment the child is born that everything that built up to that point caused the death. Because to me, if the son went through the kind of child like what we all did, uh, where if you are wrong, you get scolded. When you do uh, fail, it's okay that you fail. Not that you, it's okay, but you'll be told exactly as it is. Yeah. To me, it is not that final moment that is the problem. It is that all the while there's the expectation that it must be perfect, but at the same time, there's too much protection and you know attempt to make the life perfect. That the moment it's imperfect, the person cannot accept it. Yeah. So there's this very strange situation you're in. I think because you're not these people are not trained to go through setbacks. Yeah. No longer. No, no longer having that kind of resilience. And yeah. probably, I mean, even the kids of children in school nowadays, teachers can't touch that. Yeah. yeah, it's actually the, the school. It's actually bad. Yeah. Teachers should be about to, to discipline them. Yeah. So to me, you see, each time we see this kind of cases, parents respond in a way, yeah, parents end up, a lot of parents end up responding, overcompensating further. Yeah. yeah. Thinking that, oh, I cannot, I, I cannot and should not be so hard on them, otherwise they work. But they end up starting even younger to not, you know, uh, wishing to discipline the child. But in the end, the child becomes worse. Yeah, it creates a vicious cycle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So this sutra, this sutra uh, is I've referenced this sutra quite many times. Yeah, about how when we experience something, uh, the initial pain sometimes we cannot avoid. Yeah, but the subsequent that agony and grief that's something that we can do without. Yeah. So. While experiencing that same painful feeling, uh, can I invite Kelvin to read? While experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. While experiencing painful feeling, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed bullying does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. When he seeks delights in sensual pleasure, 
the underlying tendency to lust or pleasant feeling lies behind this. He does not understand as it is, is as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of this feelings. He does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to either neither painful nor pleasant feeling lies behind this. No. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, while experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. Yeah. Uh, it is very natural that when we experience pain or painful feelings, we would be repulsed by it, that we would have uh, aversion for it. Yeah. Uh, not wanting pain is normal, and there's nothing wrong with it. Why should anyone want to have pain? Yeah. The question is, to actually further respond towards it and be ah, you know. Um, but even more importantly here, when he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion toward um, painful feeling lies behind this. Yeah. Um, beyond that, he also seeks sensual pleasure. When I first read this, uh, in I don't know how you all feel towards this statement. While experiencing painful feeling, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. Uh, when I first read this, yeah, it brought a smile to me. And it is because I was like, wow, the Buddha really knows us. <laughs> the Buddha really knows us. Uh, whenever we have some unpleasantness, we seek to satisfy ourselves through other ways. And sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's very subtle. To what extent? I shared in meditation class about how uh, even when we are watching a television program, then it stops and there's advertisement, then we switch. Yeah, if, you are, if we are really observant and mindful about it, then you realize that the reason why we switch is precisely because we don't want to see advertisement. We may say that, oh, but it's a waste of time. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it is really because of that subtle change, you know, from a content that we want to see to a content that we want to see. That aversion. We're not even uh, ready to, to withstand a few minutes of unpleasantness. We switch. And sometimes if we switch and switch, we cannot find anything, we stand up and we go to the kitchen to find something to eat. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, and to me, it is, it is this observation in, in myself, in ourselves, that uh, I, I often highlight to students. If you cannot observe this, um, and you try to, to say, okay, well, I'll try to have some amazing, uh, grand discovery you'll be seeing one time <laughs> yeah. because your realization has to be grounded in your in, in where you are yeah. Uh, yeah. that's why I keep highlighting the, the importance of uh, being able to observe uh, the Dharma at, at where you are in your day to day yeah. um, 
now that I mentioned it, it may seem apparent. Yeah, but to really observe it as it's happening. Yeah. And this is just one example. There are many other uh, instances where it happens. Uh, I don't say that I observe myself so mindfully throughout my whole life. Or so. uh, there are moments of lapse. Uh, but I often, uh, I find that if we can even observe it once, our attitude towards Dharma will be very different. If we can observe it once and overcome it through the Dharma, our faith in the Buddha Dharma will be very different. Even if we are not enlightened, we would have seen the principal part of it uh, yeah, at work. Yeah, our understanding will be so different. Yeah, it will not just be a theoretical concept or you know, or aversion or this and that. Because you really observe, hey, this is really what's happening. You will not see the example of going to the fridge in the sutra. Yeah? Uh, you will not see the example of laksa inside the sutra. Yeah? Uh, and for many people, those examples, they may not connect with it. Yeah? Uh, but these are meant to be examples that I have observed. It's meant for as a, as a, maybe a, 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 a guide. Yeah? But ultimately, it's for individuals to observe in their own life. Uh, the arising of aversion and our response to it. Yeah. So, <coughs> for what reason? Yeah. What is the reason why we seek pleasure over pain? Of course, we, even without going through, through the reason, you may, you may, we may think, of course what? Yeah. Of course we will seek pleasure over pain. Yeah. But let's see what the Buddha says. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. <laughs> it's a tease. The Buddha, when he described this, he, he, he's not making a personal statement criticizing him, but he's just observing and stating as it is. No, we, unenlightened beings are like that. Because for the longest time, we don't know of any other way out. All we know is, not happy, go and enjoy ourselves. Not happy, go and enjoy ourselves. <laughs> yeah. In the larger scheme of things, I have shared about how uh, the, the, the three kinds of feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings, all these are, are suffering in different stages. So if in, in the light of this, uh, this understanding then you look at this then you realize why the Buddha said this is <laughs> this doesn't make sense why? because on the surface painful experience is suffering pleasant experiences the sensual pleasure is not suffering for unenlightened beings we don't see it as suffering but the Buddha looked at this and said this is a kind of suffering which is a hidden suffering sensual pleasure it cannot give you true satisfaction. You enjoy it, you get stuck with it. When you lose it or it changes, you suffer. Yeah? This is the underlying suffering. Yeah? Suffering of loss. So, in view of that, what it means is that we jump from one suffering to another suffering. Waiting for it to become suffering. Yeah? In a way, that's what keeps our economy going. Uh. 
if everybody realized it like huh? yeah but uh, this idea of sensing no yo we, we don't have to discuss or argue about it. You don't have to agree, okay? I'm not interested to convince you or anyone about this. Yeah. And if you think that the what does Sajin Yo means means uh, the fact that you once had let me tell you, if anyone is honest with themselves, that is called a sense of melancholy. Yeah. Melancholy is never a positive feeling. Don't you know make no mistake about it. Yeah, if a person can look me in the eye and say, No, melancholy is good. <laughs> it's rubbish, right? It's delusion, self-deluded. Yeah. Uh, I once, I once had this chat with this uh, Amor, a Polish girl. She came to see uh, the monastery in US uh, with her American friend. And she insists that uh, love, true love, and whatever. And then she insisted that uh, she don't have to meet that true love. Yeah, that's still love. So I asked her, I said, so first thing, uh, if you love a person and you don't get to meet the person, do you not feel a sense of longing and wanting? Then yes, I feel. So at that point in time, is that love? Yes, there is love. And are you happy? Yes, I'm happy. So without seeing the person, you are still happy? He said yes. So in that case, then you don't have to meet that person. Actually, <laughs> you see, a lot of the idea about the, 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 the not modern but the contemporary view about love is it involves a lot of self delusion. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, sensing you to, uh, to, to have once had uh, most people when they think back to what they once had, it is never out of choice. It is never out of choice that, for example, if you can find something that you really want and like, or having had it, you find that you really want and like. I have so far never heard of anyone in that sound mind say, oh, well, I have it uh, and I can choose to continue to have it. I choose to say, okay, let's, let's have it. If they said it's my choice, it was always because something else caused them to make that choice. It is never totally out of their own free will. Yeah. Maybe out of circumstances they cannot continue. So they have to make their choice. Sure, you even if you can make that choice willingly, without fighting, without crying, but still it is not your own free choice. Yeah. So but the point when someone said, Oh, we once had it is always separated beyond that choice. So, for most people, maybe you are, you are one of those special ones. For most people, when they say, ah, we once had, it is always with a sense of longing. Yeah, that we once had, but no longer had. I will leave it to you all to go and think about how that feels. Huh? Whether that's actually a pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling. That is attachment, right? Yeah, that's attachment. It's not necessarily craving, but it's attachment. Uh, it, could, it could be a craving could, in... When it has reached attachment, attachment there must be craving. Yeah. Craving precedes attachment. Yeah. Craving is one, desire and one. Yeah. 
So when you desire one up to a certain point, and you want it to, to persist, then it becomes an attachment. So, when he seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to last for pleasant feeling lies behind this. Yeah. It's the underlying tendency to last for pleasant feelings. We have this underlying tendency. And it's, it starts from our contact with painful, pleasant, and neither painful, pleasant feelings. As we come in contact with painful feelings, there's a tendency to, to not like it, to be averse towards it. When it's pleasant, it's, there's this tendency to delight in it. Yeah. Uh, in a way, nothing wrong with that, you'll delight in it. But the problem is, we allow ourselves to delight and nurture it further yeah. because we don't see it as it is. Yeah. So, he does not understand as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in, in the case of these feelings. Yeah. So, this is a standard sequence. The origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape. There are five factors. So, uh, previously some students in SGC keep on asking me how to overcome attachment, how to overcome desire, how to overcome this and that. So I keep highlighting. Uh, when we reflect on the thoughts and danger. Yeah? The thoughts and danger. But also know what is the gratification. Uh, if you look at origin, passing away, the gratification and so on, in the Vedic Sutra, this actually forms the Four Noble Truth. Yeah? What is it that you crave over? What causes it? What is the real escape? What is the real end of it? Yeah? And what is the way to end it? What is the way to end it? Uh, in, in most cases, when we say, oh, you desire something, the approach is always cut it off, just don't desire. Yeah. The Buddha's approach is no, go and look at what you crave for, what you desire over. Yeah. Truly know what exactly, what kind of satisfaction do you get from it? What is that? Here, when it says the gratification, it is to understand the extent of the gratification. This is something good. To what extent is it good? Yeah. To what extent can you get satisfaction from this entity, whether it's a person or an activity or an experience? What is the full extent? Yeah. Then the danger. Yeah. What is the problem with it? Is there a problem with it? Uh, advertising, yeah, advertising and marketing uh, is all about highlighting the gratification but not tell you the danger. When they have the, I I once, I, a few times I highlighted this as an example. Advertisement about new cars will always present it with all the perfect perfection of the car. Yeah. It never tell you this is something that can be scratched. Yeah. Can be damaged. Of course, now when you look at phones, they will they will advertise that their phone can. You know, sapphire screen, uh, 
you know, the gorilla glass screen, right, and so on and so forth. But uh, at some point, it was still. So, when he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling lies behind it. So this is the third, which I have also shared before. When something is neither painful nor pleasant, uh, for many people, they may find quite, quite a mouthful. Neither painful nor pleasant. In some texts, yeah, I like Varapha Bhikkhu Buddhist uh, translation. You see, he translates as neither painful nor pleasant. In the Chinese text, it's also Some texts go and translate as neutral or sir, so. Yeah. But in this case, for unenlightened things, it's not neutral, it's not sir, so. Sir, so is equanimity, but it is not. Why? Because to be neutral to something, you must know of its existence. Then, can you talk about being neutral? When it's not strong enough to be painful, not strong enough to be pleasant, we are not even aware of it. We are not even aware of it, you know. Why? Because when a feeling is not strong enough, in either case, it doesn't it draw our attention. Momentarily, we may become aware, but it's not interesting enough to cause us to go and take a second look. It's not interesting enough. And so we just ignore that. And from this ignoring comes ignorance. Yeah. It's because we it doesn't draw our attention, so we ignore it. We become oblivious of it. Yeah. We don't care. Why should we care? It's neither painful nor pleasant. Why should we care? And so, to me, uh, for the Buddha to use the word neither painful nor pleasant is most apt. Yeah. Because it is just that. It is not a, a, a third kind of feeling, in a way. It is just that it is the absence of this and that. Yeah. And because of that, we don't know what is happening there. And therein lies a rising of ignorance. Because you are not aware, then you don't know what is happening. And you don't know that it's changing, that it's uncertain, that it's dependent on conditions. Yeah. And that is why here it says the underlying tendency to ignorance yeah, uh, is what lies behind it. Uh, this is also why I often share in class that people come in to try come into Buddhism to try to overcome uh, anger, aversion. Uh, most people don't want to deal with greed yeah, or desire uh, and nobody care about this part, last part because nobody know about this last part also. Yeah. Uh, but my advice, my suggestion is often you must start with this, you must start observing this also. Initially we want to observe anger arising but if you don't observe this, you cannot really truly observe the arising of anger. Because if you don't observe this, you cannot observe the changes. By the time you want to observe anger, anger has arisen. By the time you, you are 
you, you say I want to observe, it has already arrived. Right? Only when you observe regularly all three kinds of feelings, in particular this third kind of feelings, then you observe the state of change, you know, the change of state from neither painful and nor pleasant to anger. Then you can observe that delta, that change. And then lies the problem because if you look at our life, most of our time we are at the, this floating around state. And it is in this state that our mind tends to drift away. Yeah, drift here, drift there, drift to the past, drift to the future. And then through the drifting, our mind fluctuates. But usually it's not fluctuating strong enough for us to say that I'm angry now, that I'm frustrated, I'm fed up, or I have desire. So, observing this <coughs> third stage, you know, this third feeling is actually very crucial. Uh, Orange, if you can read the next paragraph, if he feels a pleasant feeling. <coughs> So here the attachment is about how uh, this attachment is about how individuals have that underlying um, when the first two is easy to understand because the first two whether it's painful or, or pleasant uh, you you will quite naturally understand that uh, that's attachment the third one the third one with ignorance. With ignorance, um, the way I understand it is, when there's ignorance, we are, we are not truly aware of how it is actually changing. So, yesterday it's like that, today it's like that, tomorrow will still be like that. In this case, it's not the kind of strong I want, but a different kind of um, sense of uh, getting used to it. Taking it for granted, getting it used to it. That it, and to me, this is a very deep seated uh, form of attachment, even deeper than the first two. Because the first two, uh, it is sitting on the high, sitting on the high. This third type, to me, for the neither painful nor pleasant, as much as I, did, I say that we are not aware of it, 
but we unconsciously or consciously, mostly unconsciously, yeah, form this assumption it is it has to be like that. Before it was like that, now it's like that, tomorrow it should be like that. It's the kind of like <clears throat> you get used to things. Get used to its existence, get used to that it should continue to be the same. Uh, this is that kind of attachment. So <clears throat> this attachment forms the underlying experience or forms the basis for all our experiences where we experience everything with attachment, holding on to it, clinging on to it. Um, over here it's not so apparent exactly what they are attached to. <clears throat> if you think about it, I could I would help you ask a further question. Uh, pleasant feeling for us to be attached, understandable. For us to be attached to neither painful nor pleasant is still understandable because it's, you get used to it. But why attached to painful feeling? You must understand that here when it says attached to a painful feeling, it's not that it's not the kind of oh I want to continue to feel pain kind of attachment. So you realize that here when it says attached to this three kind of feeling, it's about saying that the experience of it <coughs> yes. the experience of it <laughs> The experience of it itself uh, is it becomes a um, uh, it's more about how the person relates to all these experiences. Yeah, uh, being attached to it as being real, yeah, being lasting, uh, and all the different wrong attitude towards them. Uh, it is as one of the Master here. It is because we don't realize that if the impermanence in even painful feelings, yeah, that we are so averse to it. But when you realize that pain itself is also impermanent and changing, it uh, not substantial, then you are not so averse to it. Yeah. So this attachment is not the usual our usual way of understanding that we want it. Not that we want it. Now we refer to it, we relate to it as being very real. So, uh, because of that, this is this monk is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging, and death. Who is attached to sorrow, lamentation. This last part, the five. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, rejection, and despair. Uh, this is a standard formula. This is a standard set which the Buddha used to describe the different uh, emotions that we feel when faced with suffering. Michelle, the next paragraph. Monks, when the instructed member of disciple experiences painful feeling, is that he does not sorrow, grief, or love. Sorry, sorrow. Does not sorrow, grief, 
So this is the contrast between the first one and the second one. The first one is an unenlightened being, an uninstructed whirling. Uh, whirling in the Pali is called Putujana. Yeah. So uh, there are very various descriptions given to unenlightened beings, what we call sense fanfu. Yeah, fanfu. Yeah. So the description is sometimes uh, run of the mill whirling, uh, uninstructed whirling. Yeah. The description is saying uh, a, a common person, yeah. someone who is common. It, and what does it mean by common? Uh, usual mindset of relating to things in this way, yeah. being uninstructed, never learned the Dharma. Yeah. And here the comparison is the instructed noble disciple. The word noble, uh, I, I wonder whether it's because of our background, our exposure to the English language. Um, I still feel a bit uneasy using the word noble. Yeah. Because in Chinese, we translate as shen. Yeah. Shen. Aria. So, um, in the Chinese language, shen. It means Cao Fan. That means you are not uh, ordinary. You are already what we would usually call enlightened already. Yeah. So I wonder why um, the word noble is being used yeah, instead of enlightened. Yeah, because if you uh, I I I did some findings into this word noble. Uh, there are a few meanings to it. I think the meaning that they they use here, you know the word noble gas, yeah, where it's very rare. Yeah. Uh, and not so much like when we say, oh, a doctor is a very noble profession. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's that meaning. Uh, but I also wonder, I question myself also, whether my assumption is correct. Because perhaps in the Buddha's time, when he used the word Arya, he was maybe referring to how uh, enlightened ones are very rare and maybe very lofty. Yeah. But not, not exactly using the word enlightened. Because the word enlightened in Buddhism is awakened. Yeah. So Arya and awakened slightly different. So here I want to just highlight that. When the noble, instructed noble disciple, noble here is Arya, uh, and uh, in the Chinese translation is Sen, uh, which means enlightened. Yeah. So this gives us some background of the difference. Uh. It's not just some disciple, but it's an instructed uh, enlightened disciple. Mm -hmm. So few places I've read uh, always relate noble to minimally being a string winner. Yeah. 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 Exactly. 
So to me, I, I wonder because for example, and I, I shared with someone, I said, why are we so humble with our reference? Other religion, minimally, if you are not a normal person, you are sane. <laughs> we are just normal. Like, a, a lot of people can be noble, uh, so uh, you practice until wow, how many lives have just become noble? <laughs> you know? So I, I wonder whether it's a choice of word. Yeah. But that, that's exactly my point. The word noble refers to those who are enlightened already. You know, first truth onwards. Chu Guo Shen Ren Yi Sang. So I'm like, if you are already first truth enlightened, then why don't you just use the word enlightened? Why use noble? What's the big deal about being noble? <laughs> you know, yeah. A person can be a very nice, very respected person, and we can say, well, he's a very noble person. Yeah, not the noble class, ah. Yeah, not the noble class. Yeah, not Gui Zhu, uh, but, uh, so, yeah. Slightly lower than enlightened. No, no, doesn't even have to be close to enlightened. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, can I ask a question? Uh -huh. um, it's regarding, because you are talking about enlightened and noble, mm. is there like any uh, specific way or any way to understand the differences between the use of enlightened, fully enlightened, uh -huh. and awakened, or uh -huh. are they all more or less the same? Oh. Yeah. So, uh, enlightened fully and enlightened. fully enlightened. Simply put, if a person is fully enlightened, then it must be an arahant. Yeah. Uh, enlightened can refer to anyone who is stream enterer and above. Yeah. Stream enterer and above. So stream enterer, uh, once returner, non-returner and arahant are all enlightened. But only an arahant is fully enlightened. But in some texts they would say that uh, fully enlightened will refer to the Buddha. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the, the way Buddhism developed, the Buddha is also known as an Arahant. Yeah. Correct. He's the first Arahant. And the way I understand it is um, a swimming instructor must first and foremost be a swimmer. Yeah. So if we know that a person is a swimming instructor, we know that he's a swimmer. But if you know that a person is a swimmer, you don't know whether he is or not. A swimming instructor. Understand? Yeah. So just because a person is a swimming instructor, oh no, just because a person is a swimmer, uh, you cannot immediately draw the conclusion that he cannot teach. But you also cannot immediately conclude that he can teach. Because it only says that he can swim. Uh, an arahant is like a person who can swim. So can swim means you are free of defilements. Yeah, but to be a Buddha, you need to not just be able to swim, not just be free of defilements, you must be able to have a pain enlightenment on your own and have the ability to teach others also. Yeah. So these are the different set of qualities. Yeah. Uh, awaken itself, the 
we use the word awaken literally for the word bodhi. Yeah. So the Buddha is an awakened one. Yeah. Uh, so known as the Buddha. In the earlier text, the word Buddha is also used for Arahant. So the, the Arahants are known as Arahant Buddha. Then those who attain enlightenment uh, uh, on their own, without the Buddha, but don't teach, is called Pachika Buddha. And the Buddha is a Samasam Buddha. So uh, in some of the texts, in the Diamond, the Diamond Sutra, the Diamond Sutra is a very interesting sutra. Uh, and over the years, I start to appreciate a bit more into the the message it's trying to convey. Uh, within the whole sutra, it basically set the stage saying that first stage, enlightened one, the Sotapanna, uh, second stage, Sakadagami. Uh, Third stage, Anagami. Fourth stage, Arahant. All these are just labels. It's just, a, if you will, a convenient tool. And even to the point of perfect enlightenment, it's also positioned that way. A long time ago, when I read it, I'm like, I, I cannot even fathom what it's trying to say. It's like, huh? Yeah. And then at some point, I understood it as a very cliche thing. Uh, but anyway, basically everything also just use this standard formula. Yeah? Uh, the standard formula is uh, A is not A, hence named A. Yeah. Bosuo da sen, ji fei da sen, si ming da sen. Bosuo anapolo sangha sangkuti, ji fei anapolo sangha sangkuti, si ming anapolo sangha sangkuti. The Buddha says this uh, is not this, but it's just named as this. Yeah. This place, this place is called Louis' house. It's not Louis' house. It's named Louis' house. Mm. This place is not the the Windsor. It's named the Windsor. It's just it's not the Windsor. It's just named the Windsor. It is not trying to be Zenish or trying to be funny. In fact, Zen tradition take this and just apply it so much that it becomes very cliche, very you know. Yeah, but actually, this is the truth. It's pointing to that even the the stages are are just just name labels to make sense of things. Yeah. So, uh, awakening is. Awakening can be used to describe someone who has kind of uh, awakened to the individuality yep. of things as they are. How things truly are. Sorry, one more question. Yes. So, Pachika Buddha, right? Yes. Uh, they, they attain enlightenment on their own. Yes. But that means it's just for the life, the very life that they attain enlightenment, right? Because I would, I would think that in their previous lives, they would have come into contact with Buddha's teaching and the yes. Dharma also. Yes. So not, they are not entirely they feel like enlightened on their own, but because of the past so, parami. 
So all the all the references yeah. saying that uh, anyone who is uh, the the at the later stage the word Buddha is used to refer to someone who is self-awakened. So when they say self-awakened, it's referring to the very last one. It's always referring to the very last one. Okay. Yeah. So last time I used to think, oh, these are three separate categories. But now my understanding is this. In this life, you come into contact with Buddha's teaching. If you manage to uh, become enlightened within this life, fully enlightened, uh, then you are known as an Arahant. But let's say you practice, practice, and then you pass away. Then you get reborn in heavenly realms, and then in this place. But in one of the life, when you come back as a human being, you are reborn as a human being, hey, there's no more Buddha teaching. And Sifu is also born somewhere else with you. No other Sifu born here. Yeah? Or somehow, whoever is born here, but there's already no, uh, no legacy of Buddhism to be found. But your imprint is so strong. When you are born as a child, you go through life also, go to school and so on. But you just have that have that awareness, different kind of sense of looking at things. And then one day you observe and you are like you see something that people don't see. And you become introspective to the point that you observe and to the point you become awakened. In that last life, there was no Buddha Dharma, no other teacher to teach you, yeah? but through your own, yeah, you become aware. But all this is the accumulation of paramis, of the practices from past life. At that point when you are reborn in that last life, maybe you are at third stage already. Yeah. But by virtue that in the last life there is no Buddha Dharma, and you are still able to attain enlightenment, you are known as a Pachika Buddha. How do one know that whether um, one is enlightened? Yes, and then and then are all monks or senior monks all enlightened? Ah, and then second okay, question. Okay, this is okay. You answer this question. Okay, so the first question is, how does one know whether you're enlightened? <laughs> you will know. <laughs> you will know. <laughs> you will know. <laughs> yeah, this is how you know. Yeah, oh, how? Oh, yeah, oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't know, ah. So the question of uh, this is a common question. It's, it's a good question. Uh, let me just cut to the chase and answer you how to know instead of asking how do I know whether I am enlightened. Uh, remember in classes I often ask students to write down think of what gets you upset. Yeah, and so on. Uh, if you do this introspection, initially when we come into Buddhism, as I keep on repeating, uh, we want to overcome anger. You, 90%, maybe 99% of people who come into Buddhism all come in to want to overcome anger. Either their own anger or other people's anger. <laughs> who in turn cause them to be... Uh, so initially our approach is to try to resolve the problem or resolve that person. We don't think about resolving our anger. By the time we can resolve our anger, or we think we can resolve our anger, sometimes it is by avoiding it, sometimes it's changing our mindset. Uh, 
And oftentimes it's not to go and think about the problem. But at a later stage, then you when you are at a certain stage where you find that hey, oh, for for one week I haven't got angry before. For one week I observe that no desire actually arises. Not so much that it arises you can overcome. Huh? That is called mitigation. Helpful. Yeah. If you are still at the stage of mitigation, that means it arises and you are, you can overcome. That is wonderful. But you are not, definitely not enlightened yet. Mm. Yeah. You are able to overcome it. It's a good thing, but you are not enlightened because it can still arise. If you find that it has not arisen for a week, well, that's wonderful also. But do not then think that it is because you are enlightened. Because it may just well be that it is so subtle and you overcome it so quickly, you are you are not aware, or that you have your your karmic conditions are are very good. So now you are not meeting anyone who is causing you to become upset. So the approach is at the later stage when you find that hmm, for a period of time you are not angry, you are not having strong desire, and you have you seem to see things clearly, then. This is where you do the exercise. As you meditate, yeah, then you bring to mind what used to cause you to be upset. And at that point, observe how you respond to it. This exercise is only to be undertaken at a later stage. Because at the initial stage, especially the in-between stage, we may sometimes uh, not even be, not be, not be subtle enough our mind is not crisp enough to observe our subtle fluctuation. And we may think that, oh, I can, I'm, I felt okay. Yeah. But only at a later stage when we are, we are so attuned to observing ourselves. Then when you bring something in the past to mind, you see clearly and very honestly where you are. This is how you will know whether you are enlightened or not. So that's the first question. Second question is, uh, are all monks necessarily enlightened, or senior monks or otherwise? No. Yeah. It is not that people become enlightened, then they become monks. It is that they, or nuns. It is that they become monks or nuns to become enlightened. Who is that? How who is to judge whether I'm enlightened? Uh, or like at what stage? Uh, so the Buddha gave us a checklist. Yeah, he really gave us a checklist. Uh, let me see whether this book has the checklist. It's called the Ten Fetters. Okay, uh, refer to page 268. Let me see. Uh. Yes. Page 268. So it mentions about. So if you look at the. Here, friends, a monk develops insight preceded by serenity. Can you find that? Yeah. So he now pursues, develops, and cultivates that path, and while he is doing so, the fetters are abandoned and the underlying tendencies eliminated. Yeah. 
So here it mentions about the fetus. Yeah? So that is number 8. Then let's refer to the reference for fetus. Two six eight. Two six eight. Now, if you refer to three seven four to three seven five, I'm 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 kind of jumping ahead and not telling you the process uh, because. There is a, the whole a whole skew altogether. So if you look at page three seven five, this is the 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 set of factors that I have repeatedly mentioned before. The five factors and the the ten. So if you look at stream mantra, identity view doubt and wrong grasp of rules and observances. Yeah, Then uh, once returner does not remove anything but weakens last hatred and delusion. Yeah. Uh, rightly speaking, I don't know why he he ended ended weakening delusion. I guess it should weaken. Yeah, but in the original text only mentioned weakening last and hatred. Okay. Uh, so um, yeah. Now, uh, let me see here. Then, non-returner eradicate sensual lust and ill will. No? And Arahant uh, totally eradicate the, the craving and desire for form realm, formless realm, then conceive restlessness and ignorance. Yeah, so, this is the checklist. Huh? Where am I? <laughs> How how does that help you? There is a specific rule that forbids us from telling you. Oh, okay, okay. As well, mm. yeah. Um, so, so from this table itself, does it mean that? Anybody that or anyone that will in Arahantship would actually be a Shiva. No, can be a heavenly realm also. The Deva. Uh, yeah, but must be in the pure abode. So there's still form. Uh, or any other form. In all references, no mention about being in a formless state. Conceit and identity view, the two of them are about the same thing. But one is the uh, uh, one is the very deep-seated underlying sense of self. The other one is more of a fabrication of a self. So I, I the example I gave uh, is when you cross a road and someone honk at you. At that moment, that sense of, yeah, that is from the underlying conceit. 
of a ah, yeah. Or let's say someone shot at you, okay? That initial shock is due to that conceit, if you will. But after that, when you turn around and you see that it is actually Louis shouting at you, yeah, or <laughs> or let's say uh, somebody, then you you may think, who are you to shout at me? May, may not be you, lah, may be whoever. At that point in time, the processing of how you, of, of who you are as a person and how that person can shout at this who you are, uh, that is the conceptual uh, I. Yeah, so these two levels. The conceptual I, you know how, sometimes we literally say things like that. Recently in newspaper, a few of the, the media corp, uh, Celebrity, right? In a car park, you know who I am. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that is the identity view part. But the identity view is not free from the underlying conceit. Also, the underlying conceit is a very deep-seated attachment, whereas the identity view is based on the conceptual layer yeah, of who you are. Uh, yeah, they are they are all referring to the same thing, but at different levels. In the Chinese uh, Chinese tradition, the, the term is very very simple. 分别我执,具身我执. So 分别我执 means the the I through discrimination. 具身 means uh, the one that you are so called innately born with. Yeah, the one that the moment you are born, you have that sense of I. Uh, without thinking, without discrimination, you already have the idea of ah, ah. Yeah. Then the the identity view can be gradually built up, becoming stronger and stronger. But it's always linked to the the fundamental concept of or not concept that attachment to this as I. So uh, yeah. This identity view, the Pali term is Sakya Diti. Sakya here, literally, attachment to this body. Yeah, but this body here can refer to the physical body, can also refer to our existence. Oh, yeah, but it is a view. Here is just removing the view portion. Yeah. So, view is fabricated. Uh. Oh, fabricated. Now, if you look at this 10, uh, the reason why there are all these questions is because this 10, a lot of them is unfamiliar to us. You know, unfamiliar to us. So we're like, Sumilaye, I don't have this. Eh? I never, if I don't learn Dharma, I also don't know why it's a view. <laughs> yeah. But you must understand that uh, these are terms, and even if we have not learned it, we may actually have that mindset. Call it a view, call it a mindset. We actually act in that way. Yeah. Even if you don't learn, oh, this is identity view. We actually think in that way. Yeah. The example I give cannot be found in the sutra, but it is how we act. When someone scolds you, and we may respond at a two level. Yeah. One is the uh, response to very 
the, the first response is from that conceit. The second layer as we then interpret and get upset is the identity view portion plus the conceit. Mm. Yeah, these two together. Um, take for example, if let's say uh, someone shouted at you, you turn around and you see it's Sifu. Uh, you, 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 your, your response, that initial will still be there, but the second layer probably <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Hard to say, uh, hard to say. Uh. Uh, yeah, hard to say. <laughs> hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, so the second layer depends on how you interpret it. Yeah, with reference to your relation to that person. Uh, and it's not just in terms of shouting. Yeah. Uh, in has to Trout Glass, I give various examples. Someone tap your... Yeah, you may still experience it. The, the tap itself is just a tap, no? Yeah, so there's no whatever, uh, but after that your interpretation. Yeah, so it, it all ties in. Now this ten is directly linked to the state or the stage of enlightenment. Uh, you'll notice that within this ten, uh, there is the three fundamental defilement: yeah, greed, hatred, and delusion. Or ignorance, if you will. Yeah. So, uh, in many other sutras, then the Buddha highlighted various other aspects of our our defilements. So, uh, how do we know whether we are enlightened? You know, Buddha give us a very clear checklist. Uh, so, in, in some ways, in Buddhism, is a very um, open source approach very democratic approach or it's not democratic it is very open you 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 have to be honest to yourself and you know yourself how enlightened you are yeah you don't need someone to come and affirm you don't you don't need sifu to say mm, you're quite enlightened now no need yeah in fact if someone praise you and you become hey not bad huh? that means you're not enlightened <laughs> yeah. now the question about Louis asking, how, how about you, Sifu? Uh, she's not the only one who asks this question. She will not be the only one. She will not be the last one also. Many people also ask this question, and not just ask me. Last time I also asked other variables. <laughs> so, Sifu, uh, if you ask me, uh, I can also just tell you, yeah, I don't think I'm enlightened. Yeah, but I, I find that uh, I'm... I am not as unenlightened as before, or I become more and more aware of how unenlightened I am. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the, the checklist here, last time when I saw the rule, yeah, that there is really this rule that we are not allowed to tell you all about our enlightenment. Um, I would say that now I can appreciate why that is not helpful. Yeah, that's really not helpful. Um, because the tendency for us to become attached to that also and to discriminate. Did I set the rule? Huh? Is that not supposed to tell? Uh, sorry? You mean did I set the rule? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because there were those who actually. Uh, tell people about their attainment in order to get more 
support. Mm. Yeah. 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 And that is talking about if the person is really enlightened, uh, mm. and you tell, right, it's a wrongdoing, you know. If you are not enlightened and you go and tell, then that's worse. Yeah. Uh, that's worse. And so, you see, even if you are enlightened and you tell, you will, the Buddha says it will cause, uh, you, will, you will poison the hearts of, you will corrupt the heart of the lay people. Why? Because it's very straightforward. Ma. Huh? Someone was not enlightened. Eh? Hey, but the other very, or, or, or let's say flip around. Eh? Somehow someone managed to get, get the word from me that, oh, I'm enlightened. Eh? Okay? Then you're, hey, why bother going to that class? Is Chongma Pasi enlightenment not? Then quite naturally people will just add, um, for the wrong reason gravitate towards this feature versus that feature. Before I ask that question because uh, I know a lot of people they actually uh, have this misconcept about like monks, especially the senior monks after they pass on. Uh, and then when they committed their relics, oh, a lot of them will go Oh, yeah. You know, it's like because they think that monks are enlightened. Definitely, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, because lay person when when they die, when they meet some of them they do have that also. So it's yeah. not just monks. Well uh, what to do? In a way. Yeah. It would be good if there's a checklist whereby the we can see ourselves whether you judge a person whether he's enlightened. Rather than that person, you if, see, if you're going to tell me hey, I'm enlightened, I, I, are you sure or not? You, you have that kind you of see, doubt. Um, in the Buddha's time, the, there were many people who became enlightened uh, regardless of whether the teacher is enlightened. In fact, there were some cases after the Buddha's time where the the student actually became enlightened before the teacher. And after that, the teacher, the student realized that the teacher have some um, missing part or have some wrong understanding in some areas. But the student, out of respect to the teacher, still, still accord to the, the, the teacher, like prostration and everything, but then very kindly, out of compassion, point out to the teacher. Yeah. So in Buddhism, we don't say that teacher must must definitely be enlightened. Ideally, lah, you know, if you can find, yeah. So that's why I always tell people: if you want to find enlightenment, you can go and find. It's just like Narendra Sarikar. He became enlightened before his first teacher. Yeah. Still, still frustration. Yeah, he still, you know. Yeah. And one other thing about this, lah, is there was one thing, you know, I always like to give example. So one day, I thought about this. If you consider, most of us, we tend to look at a person, whether the person is enlightened, number one. If not, it must be well, perfect in the way he do things, everything, then we run. Then sometimes we may see a teacher, or whether it's about Buddhism or otherwise, uh, if a person has a bit of flaw, then we go, I don't want to learn from him anymore, or her. So I once told somebody, I said, uh, because someone commented, Ayah, macam like signboard no. <laughs> like signboard. So then from there I thought, hey, that's not a bad thing, you know. 
Because if you think about it, right, signboards are almost never at the place they are pointing to. Almost never. You see, toilet sign is outside the toilet, not inside the toilet. Because once you're in the toilet, you don't need a toilet sign. The sign to say Changi Airport is not at Changi Airport. <laughs> but it does serve its purpose. Right? So why do you bother where the signboard is? It is where you are because precisely you need the signboard. So as long as the signboard is pointing to the, to the correct direction, it has served its purpose. Yeah. The signboard may be dirty, it may, it may not have nice lettering, doesn't matter. Follow the direction, don't follow the other things. <laughs> Coming back to the signboard, maybe it may be yeah, it's showing you to the that direction and then after that when you almost reach there you realize that oh signboards he actually salaran. Which part of which part of which part of as long as the signboard is pointing to the right direction, do you not understand? By saying that when as you approach the goal you find that the signboard is wrong, then you are you're assuming a different case. Understand? The case that I'm talking about is when the signboard is pointing in the right direction. Which part of that statement do you not understand? I tell you, if you talk to me when I was 18 years old, when I was 25 years old, but even when I was 27 or maybe even 29 years old, I would, I would now agree that, yeah, last time, uh, sometimes I really just want to win. But at this point, uh, either at my physical age or my spiritual age, I really have, I couldn't care less whether you agree or not. <laughs> so uh, my concern is whether you understand the point. Yeah, never to just win the argument. You know how many times I have discussion with people and I actually prove myself wrong. Have I shared with you about this? Because this is uh, yeah, so uh, with reference to what you ask, this is the checklist, but don't uh, jump straight into it, otherwise it becomes quite fun to try. And if you would want to work on the day-to-day the -day things, what gets you upset, agitated, and what causes you to have more desire and wants. Yeah. Well, then gradually it becomes apparent. Mm. So, uh, back to page 31. So the last, so 
uh, Louis, the last line while experiencing that same. Last line only, yeah. Uh, page 22, <laughs> then continue to page 22, 3, 4, 5. You are like what? While experiencing with that same, that same painful feeling, that he harbors no aversions towards it. Since he harbors no aversions towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversions uh, towards painful feeling does not lie behind this. While experiencing painful feeling, he does not seek uh, delight in uh, sensuous pleasure. pleasure. For what reasons? Because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feelings other than sensuous pleasures. And uh, since he does not seek delight in sensuous pleasures, the underlying tendency to last for sensuous pleasant feeling does not lie behind this. He understands as it really is the origin and the passing away. He understands as it really is the origin and the passing away. Yep. Mm -hmm. The gratification, the dangers, and the escape in the in the case of this feeling. Since he understands this feeling, the underlying these things, these things the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. Yeah, so this is the exact opposite of uh, the unenlightened being. Uh, the reason why I, I corrected the, the reading there is because the meaning would uh, be a bit different. Um, he understands as it really is. Uh, so he, there's something that he understands uh, correctly. Then what follows is the thing that he understands. Yeah? So, there's an implicit cause there. You what know, if he understands as it really is? Then there's an implicit cause, and what follows is the thing that he understands as it really is. Yeah. And what is it? The origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the face of these feelings. So. description um, will make a lot more sense as we do more of the uh, introspection and observation. Um, yeah, otherwise, uh, at the conceptual level, it's still helpful, yeah, but doesn't have that, mm. that impact. Yeah, doesn't have that impact. Serene, uh, okay. so would you like to read the second last? If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels another painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. This monk is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging, and death, who is detached from sorrow, lamentation, pain, rejection, and despair, who is detached from suffering and sin. This monk, in the dis is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed learner. Mm -hmm. 
It says the, the statement says this month is called a normal cycle to detect from birth, aging, and death. Yes. What's it birth, aging, and death, and not aging, sickness, and death? Birth, aging, and death. Why was not sickness a uh, reference to this state of mm. our new birth? In some of the texts, you'll find that uh, it is always referring to just birth, aging, and death. Yeah. Sickness is just part of that process. Uh, and sickness is, uh, in a way, more optional than aging. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if you look at the dependent origination, uh, it's also Laos, yeah, because that's how it was based. Uh. Because aging does for dependent origination uh, together. Yeah. It's more of the correct. That's a kind. Yeah. That's the last there, point. right? Yeah. There? From the initial part when we're talking about the three divine messages, yes. uh, divine messages, we talk about sickness, and right. there's no talk about that. Yes, uh, I would say that it is just like if you consider in the early early part, uh, the Buddha only mentioned about the four precepts. Then number five came about later. Yeah, uh, not that the Buddha didn't teach about alcohol. Yeah, but he did teach, but at the earlier stage he didn't have to cover. It. So, um, in various sutra, the, the, the formula, common formula is birth, aging, and then death. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, sickness is put inside, yeah, but not all of them. Not all of them. Uh, the one, one could understand it that the the specifics, okay, whether you include sickness or not include sickness, uh, it is this whole process of of um, of uh, going through life, yeah, because birth, aging, and death, or birth, aging, sickness, and death, is the tribulations of life. Yeah. That once you are born, the subsequent ones you cannot avoid. Yeah. It's more about that. And more importantly, how we relate to these experiences. Yeah. Uh, when you have aging, how do you relate to it? If you don't relate to it properly, you will suffer. If you have sickness, if you don't have sickness, then you have no such a problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you have sickness, how do you relate to it? Uh, but it's a good point. Yeah. You'll find that uh, in some of the in some cases, uh, as you look at more and more, it's just like the the feelings. Yeah. The Buddha is not is really not attached to it being explained this way or that way. He explained in so many ways just so that people can understand. It's not fixed to that feelings must be like that. Uh, so even the dependent origination uh, mentioned in the Heart Sutra class, there is the common twelve links. Yeah. But there's also the ten links and uh, the eight. Yeah. So uh, when you understand what these links are talking about, then you find that the Buddha and his disciples, well, anyone can't tell them anything, uh, they can cut in and link it with the twelve links. Yeah. Uh, and to me that is ultimately what we we should be working towards. To be able to see this underlying principle uh, within our day to day. And if you can always refer to it 
uh, but not in that kind of um, very schematic structured manner. Because not every day do you face aging sickness and death. How? <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you can take the underlying principle and apply, uh, uh, then you can actually see the implication. So over here, the fourth one, rejection, sorrow, lamentation, pain, rejection and despair. Uh, in some of the uh, translation, the word is distress. Yeah, distress. In fact, the word rejection, recently in one of the, the translation, we were still arguing about it with another sister uh, who, who, is, who spent seven years in Sri Lanka. The, so, yeah, uh, we have some opinion about the word rejection. But you must remember, uh, you must remember, these are terms, English words. These are English words. Uh, so you can take this as a general guide for a start. Yeah? Uh, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair or dejection and despair. Uh, but don't get stuck with, oh, must be the word despair. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's basically referring to a whole series of different emotion yeah, in relation to suffering. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, if you can understand it this way, then uh, it helps you, it helps us to relate to the teachings more deeply uh, and more meaningfully. I see Buddhism like more suitable for people who actually at least quit the Yeah, those people who but yeah, how do they come into contact? How do they actually come into contact with Buddhism if they want to learn more? Uh, yes and no, you know. Because no, talk about old people, maybe young one, they don't go to school, man. But actually, I would honestly, uh, I would honestly feel that uh, having an education is helpful, but not a necessity. We must remember, fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago. Sifu don't read Chinese texts. Eh? Mm. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I first went to US, even before ordaining, my Dharma brother, his Chinese is much better than mine. But I remember one incident when, we, when it was the rest period during the 21-day retreat. We came out and then he, he was uh, relating to the the the, the sermon or the sharing that my teacher just covered and it is about uh, uh, yeah. and somehow his understanding was incorrect and I corrected him even mm. though if you ask me the words I don't know how to write no? mm. but I can re remember and when I explained to him then he's like yeah I think it's correct and recent years when we were doing translation then I, I, I mentioned to him again Ah, this part remember. <laughs> yeah. Even though I really cannot at that point in time I really cannot read a lot of the words. Yeah. I don't say it's because I was seeing a girl, 
but I would think that um, the ability to understand has less to do with the education level. Yeah. If you when you go through how do I call it? Uh, like this is a completely different language from what you know. So then it's a different thing altogether. Being illiterate it still means that you can speak and listen, ma. He's not totally deaf and dumb. You know what I mean? He cannot he don't have high literacy level, but at least he can still communicate. And that's why in the story it goes that uh, when there was some verses written, he looked at it, he don't understand, he has to ask someone to read to him. But the moment the person read, immediately he gave a reply. Uh, one is the attitude, one is the yeah, the, the, the ability to understand. Uh, this is beyond literacy. Actually, uh, Buddha was teaching, nobody said that all his disciples were different. Yeah, a lot of them are, one of them is so side one mm. And until the third Buddhist council is that, then they really spread it down to yeah. write things. Before that was all by all, all oral. Yeah. yeah. So of course now if Matthew Ricard, who is a French uh, Tibetan monk, uh, if he were to speak to you in French, even if he speak to me in French, <laughs> I also cannot understand. <laughs> Doesn't mean I cannot understand monk. Uh, it's because of the language itself. So, yes and no. If the past, if the instructor can only teach in English and use the English text, well, of course, someone who don't understand English have difficulty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, can't check because I need to be at the center at eleven thirty. It's eleven. Uh. Yeah. Then we need to uh, wrap it up. Huh? Uh, we started about nine. Uh. So about two hours. Or so. So, um, I want to just wrap up this text. Uh, this text is from Samhita Nikaya 36, uh, uh, Sutta number 6. It is on Vedana, Vedana Samhita. Yeah, Vedana is not Vedana, the font type, it's Vedana. Vedana is usually translated as show, feelings. Yeah, uh, but the way I would choose to translate it is sensation. Translation. Yeah. Here, uh, in this case, it is quite uh, a fix on bodily sensation. Yeah. But you will find that in other sutras, the Buddha did highlight uh, mental sensation also. Uh, mental sensation. Oh. So this this um, this whole section, the number thirty six, is all about sensation. And why is this sensation? It is how you feel the moment you come in contact with this world. The first initial feel. In response to that feeling, you may have emotions. Uh, emotions come after this. Yeah, emotions come after this experience, this sensation. Uh, so sometimes I use, uh, not sometimes, I often use the word sensation in replacement of feelings. Because feelings is often misinterpreted as emotions, yeah. and then uh, sometimes I would I will also use the word experience. Yeah. How do you experience it? Is it a pleasant experience, a painful experience, or neither painful nor pleasant experience? Then uh, from the experience you may feel a certain emotion. Uh, 
So the, the gist of this is, uh, in reference to us, uh, we need to have a deeper understanding of what these feelings are. Yeah. Otherwise, we will just keep running from one to the other, one to the other. Uh, no end. Okay, thank you. Thanks to Sufu for the three postations. Post postations. Five. 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 Five